are in business. Um, if you've been with us thus far, we have been looking through the storyline of the Bible. We're looking at kind of the overarching narrative of the Bible and have said that the, the Bible is a story. And there's four chapters to this story. Remember, creation, the fall, redemption, and then consummation. And so we've spent the first part of the semester talking about creation. God has made the world good. God has made us in His image. God has given us work to do. And last week we started to talk about this thing called the fall. What it looked like for man to be plunged into sin. What it looked like for the world to be corrupted and ruined as a result of it. And tonight we're going to continue talking about the fall specifically. And um, talk about how that affects our hearts Talk, talk about how that affects us as individual people. How does the fall affect us, you and me, as individuals? So, we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 2. Uh, if you have your uh, thing, we'll just follow along. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask... Where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, Where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. And therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Katim and look. Send to Qatar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Then we'll jump to verse 23. How can you say, I am not defiled, I have not run after the bales? See how you have behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there. A wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving and her heat. Who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry, but you said it is no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, thankful for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather together, to get in out of the cold, and to worship, and to submit before your uh, living Word. We pray that you would, Holy Spirit, come and attend the preaching of your Word so that you would come and pierce our hearts afresh. Would you convict us in the ways that we need to be convicted? And would you encourage us and bolster us in the ways that we need to be encouraged? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I know of a person who 
sleeps with their pet snake. And it is not a little wormy garden snake either. It is a massive boa constrictor. True story. And this person obviously likes their pet, obviously is obsessed with their animal, and so they give half of the bed to this large snake, and they take the other half of the bed. It's odd. But uh, (laughs) this person likes their snake. And uh, she started to notice that this pet snake of hers was getting sick because uh, after... Yeah, this is a girl. This is a woman. Um, After a while, she started to realize this, this... snake was obviously sick or something and has not eaten in a long time. I don't know what they're supposed to eat, uh, mice or something. And so she takes it to the vet and, and, you know, the the vet's checking up on this snake and uh, they're like, how long has it been since this snake has eaten anything? She's like, I don't know, like three weeks or so. And so he understands, okay, I think I know what's going on here. Whenever a snake is getting ready to consume a large prey, it begins clearing space so that it can consume the prey. Meaning, you are sleeping next to something you shouldn't. The reason I tell you that story is because, this is a true story, sometimes the things that we love the most are the things that are the most dangerous thing to us. Sometimes the thing that we gravitate our heart towards the most and pour our love in is the very thing that has the potential to kill us. And I want you to know that this is you. And this is me. We all have things that we love. And it may not be boa constrictors. It may be. I don't know what it is that you love. But there are things that we pour our very hearts into. When mankind fell into sin, this did something to our heart. It radically twisted it and bent it in a direction away from God. But yet, because we are made in God's image, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in your heart. God has set eternity in your heart. And what we, have, what we essentially have, and this is the reason why Pascal says that we have a God-shaped hole in our heart. And what we try and do is we fill that enormous hole. We try and stuff it with any and everything that we can to satisfy us. But because we are sinful, the things that we are trying to stuff it with, fill it with, are not God. And the Bible calls this whole process idolatry. It's idolatry. And so uh, what Jeremiah 2 does is it, it begins to address this issue of idolatry, what goes on in our own hearts. And it raises three questions for us. And I want to look at each of these in turn. The first is just simply this. What is idolatry? What is it? There's kind of four components in this passage that you can see that makes, uh, that, that gives you a working definition of what an idol is. The four things are that, that an idol is attractive, an idol is worthless, an idol is destructive, and an idol is unsatisfying. So let's look at each of these in turn. First, an idol is attractive. Verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. God is noticing this awful trend that is happening in his people. He is talking to Israel. He's talking to his Old Testament covenant community. And he says, something is happening. And if you notice the directional language, it says that they have strayed far from me and that they are following worthless idols. The word there literally means walking after. They are pursuing 
worthless idols. They have found something more attractive than God, something more compelling, something that has captured their hearts and they are being drawn to it. It says that they are being drawn to idols. Okay, what is an idol? An idol is a self-created God. In the Old Testament, they used to, you know, fashion little statues, little kind of figurines and say, that is my God, and they would bow down and worship that. Okay, we don't really do that anymore, typically, I'm guessing, in this room. But the Bible also talks about there being idols of the heart. Okay, what does that mean? It means the same thing is going on, except it's just happening in your heart in sort of an, on an intangible spiritual level, that you are worshiping something that is not God. So what does it mean to worship something? It means to desire it, to praise it, to, to find all of your identity and all of the meaning in your life, all of the significance in this thing. It means centering your life upon it. Whatever it is, this is what worshiping something is. And so it doesn't have to look like formalized religious worship, like going to the church or going to a temple or going to a synagogue or something. It's whatever it is that has actually captured my heart's attention. This is why Bob Dylan says, uh, you know, his song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. You Gotta Serve Something. Something is going to draw your heart towards it. You are going to worship something. Everybody is building their life building their identity on something. And whatever that something is, that's what you worship. So you could be, whether you are an atheist or whether you are a radical fundamentalist Muslim, you are worshiping something. You are building your life upon something. And whatever that is, that's what an idol is. It's whatever is attractive, what has captured your heart. So it's the first thing, it is attractive. But also says that they are worthless. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. The word there means uh, vanity or empty. It's the same word for uh, breath sometimes. Weightless. These things don't have any actual substance. They're not really gods. It's not like there's sort of a multiple you know, pantheon of gods and the God of the Bible is just mad that you picked a different one and are worshiping whatever that is. No, he's saying these aren't gods at all. But But it feels like they are. It feels like they possess unbelievable power, right? They demand all of your heart. They demand all of your life. They demand all of your attention. And yet, they're nothing. They're not actually there. They are weightless. They're empty. So that's the second thing, that they are worthless. But the third thing about what makes an idol an idol is that it is destructive. If you look in verse 5 again... It says that they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. You see the connection there. Whatever it is that you have set your heart on, if it is not God, it is going to do something to you. It is going to uh, backfire and change you. And the Bible says it's actually going to change you for uh, the worse. Whatever it is that you are setting your heart on will end up destroying you. This is, uh, uh, you, you remember Gollum from Lord of the Rings? Of course you do. Uh, What is it that he has centered his life upon? It's the ring. It is his precious, right? It is very precious to him. And he uh, is committed to this ring. His whole heart revolves around this ring. And what what do we see it doing to him? It has uh, ruined him. It has dehumanized him. It has corrupted and, and warped him and twisted him into something different than what he was before. And he is now willing to lie in order to get it. 
He is willing to betray his friends in order to get it. He is willing to murder in order to get it. It has ruined and twisted him. And so scripture says anything you begin worshiping other than God will ultimately ruin and destroy your life. And now this can be really obvious with some things. Addictions, drug abuse, alcoholism, sex addictions. This is so obvious. You can see, okay, somebody who has set their life on those things, somebody who has, who has uh, invested their very identity and built their life on those things, obviously it is destroying their life. But what I want you to see is that any idol, anything you put your heart into other than God will do the same thing at some level. It'll destroy you. It'll, it will be destructive. This is why when you broke up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it felt like life wasn't worth living anymore. It felt so utterly painful that you just, life was pointless after that because you had made your relationship an idol. This is the same way if you didn't get into that team or into this program, it was utterly crushing. It was utterly devastating to you. It wasn't just sort of the appropriate level of sadness or of disappointment. It was crushing. And so you begin to realize, okay, it's not just drug addictions and alcoholism that has this effect on us. It's any idol, even idols that our culture promotes and and is socially acceptable. Think of it like this. Some of you have made idols out of your grades, out of the grade that you are trying to get. And so as a result, you have sacrificed time with your friends. You have sacrificed time with your family in order to get it. And as a result, you, you are crushed underneath the weight and the pressure of having to get this grade. And it is, you are losing sleep over it. This idol that you are serving is slowly sort of dehumanizing you in its own way. It is making you feel guilty and pressure and you're, you know, you're freaking out over these grades. Some of you have uh, made your body an idol. Your, your, your body type, your body size. And as a result, you are now a slave to the gym, a slave to checking the caloric calorie, you know, the intake on it, a slave to fitting into that type of size. And if you take it far enough, this is the thing that drives you into eating disorders. This is the thing that drives you into compromising what you're willing to wear because you're willing to cross boundaries just to get attention from people for your body type. And it has begun to twist and dehumanize you as well. Some of you have made idols out of your relationships, your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And as a result, that's who you spend all of your time with. And when you're not with them, that's who you talk about all the time. And that's who you think about when they're not around. They have utterly uh, consumed your schedule. And you're so afraid of losing this idol, so afraid of losing this relationship, out of utter fear and insecurity, you just cling as tight as you can to this person. And so you get way too emotional, way too quickly, way too physical, way too quickly, because you're trying to mark your territory that I have to hold on to this person as tight as I can, because if they leave, then what happens? I'm crushed, devastated. Life isn't worth living anymore. The idol begins to deconstruct and dehumanize you as well. You begin to see, okay, it's really anything that we throw our heart into other than God that can have this effect. Believe it or not, you can even make an idol out of your religion, your religiosity, your good behavior, your moralism. You say, I have built my life on my ability to keep these religious rules. And as a result, what has it done to you? It's made you proud. 
and self-righteous and rigid and honestly not very fun to be around. And, 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 and it gives you the, all the resources to look down on other people that don't keep your rules. And it has twisted you and, and made you into something you weren't before. It can be anything. What is it for you? Your intelligence, your, your family background, your money, your reputation, your resume. We all have them. What is yours? For me, confessionally, uh, I worship and bow down to people's approval of me. I've always, I've always done it. I've always uh, wanted to fit in with people, wanted to seem cool, wanted to have people speak well of me. And so what has that done to my life? How does it ruin and dehumanize me? Well, anytime I walk into a, a room or a set of people, I have to size up what people's expectations are of me. And then I try and perform to meet that expectation, trying to perform to meet that standard. And so with this group, it's a totally different expectation than this group. And so I have to keep performing and that chameleon social thing is exhausting and it utterly wears me out and that's the thing that i have to struggle with constantly this idol of having to have y'all and other people be approved of me than god's approval of me it is utterly destructive fourth thing is unsatisfying idols are just unsatisfying verse uh, 13 uh, it, it reads this My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. There's basically three different types of water sources in the, you know, Palestine at this time. Uh, You had uh, actual flowing rivers, streams of water. This is why it's called living waters, because it's, you know, moving, it's alive, it's active. And then you had uh, what was uh, groundwater that you collected in a well. And then you had runoff water that you collected in a cistern. And a cistern is basically just digging a hole in the ground to collect it. And then you kind of coat the inside, insulate the inside with plaster to you know, gather the water. But of course, that was a bad option because the plaster would typically crack. And as soon as it did, the water would, you know, leaks out through the bottom. So God is using this imagery of these different types of water sources and and he's saying, you have traded the best option for the worst option. And on top of that, to add insult to injury, the worst option has a hole in it. It's not even doing what it's accomplishing. Here I am, the Niagara Falls of flowing, gushing water that can quench your thirst, that can satisfy your the aches in your soul, that is constantly coming, constantly flowing. You have traded that for a hole in the ground to bend over and to try and suck out the moisture before it leaks out. It's constantly, no matter how much water you pour in, it's constantly getting away. It's never satisfying. It's never doing the trick. It's constantly getting away from you. Uh, ben Gibbard, who is the lead singer of Death Cab for Cutie or, and Postal Service, last year he wrote an article in Paste Magazine. And uh, he has a, it's kind of like a memoir where he's basically writing about his life and you know, talking about the um, uh, album that they just put out. And he writes this. I found this very interesting. He says, I find it very hard to accept the wonderful things in my life. My life really is great. I do exactly what I want to do for a living. I have a wonderful, wonderful person to share my life with. I have a great family. I have great friends. But somehow, there's a void. I'm the last person who should be complaining or wondering why I'm perpetually unhappy, because he's a wealthy, famous musician. Uh, 
And he says, an ex-girlfriend once got upset when I told her that music is the most important thing in my life. It's more important than anyone else could ever be. I don't want to be overly dramatic and say it's the only thing that gets me up and keeps me going, but people in your life come and go. As you walk through your life, you make relationships, you break friendships, you have relationships. Music is the one thing I've always been able to rely on, so why wouldn't it be the most important thing in my life? He tells you music is the number one thing I have built my life on. Relationships come and go. Music has always been there. And yet, there's still a void. I'm still perpetually unhappy. It's still not doing the trick. It is not big enough. It is not glorious enough to satisfy this thirst in my soul. And you felt this, right? I mean, you you have made that friendship, you have made that relationship, and you got into it thinking it was going to be all that, and it just wasn't, and it didn't do the trick. You thought getting in with this crowd of people, this, you know, getting in with this group of people would, would kind of tie up all the loose ends in your soul, and it just didn't. Just left you bored and longing. You thought that getting into app, or getting into this program, or getting into that frat or that sorority would do the trick, and it just didn't. You've all kind of tasted this. The reason why idols are worthless and attractive and destructive and unsatisfying is because they aren't God. They're too unshake they're, they're too shaky. They're not stable enough. They're they're too vulnerable. They don't do the trick to fill the eternity that is in your heart. My sister, when this is mid to this is early nineties, when she was in high school, uh, she went out with a guy who tattooed all four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on his arms. Smart decision. And uh, obviously this was not the you know, best way to, you know, this is not the best tattoo choice, but he did it. And so ten, you know, 10 years later after the fact, this was you know, early 90s, 10 years later, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I realize for some of you it's cool, but for the rest of the world it is not cool. He permanently linked himself to something in the culture. And because it was historical and in the culture, it was shaky and fluid and movable. And so 10 years from now, he's like, oh man, huge regret. <laughs> my, uh, my point is this. When you link your heart up to something, anything that is historically vulnerable, that is culturally shaky, you will constantly be let down. It's just not secure enough. It's not big enough. If your idol is uh, your friends, where are they going to be in 20 years from now? All, your popularity. If, you're, if your idol is your looks, come back to us in 50 years and report on that. It's too, it's too shaky. It's not, it's not secure enough. Your heart was made for something eternally secure. This is what idolatry is. And the kicker is, is that we all have them. Every one of us. John Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory. It is just constantly producing and manufacturing one idol after the other for us to pick and for us to worship. But our text also raises a second question. And I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on this one. The question is this, how do we spot them? How do we identify our own idols? How do we we figure them out? Uh, Verse 23, down here at the bottom of of your handout. It says, how can you say I am not defiled? I have not run after the Baals. Baals was just a, uh, one of the pagan idols at the time. See how you have behaved in the valley? Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel. 
running here and there. Bible calls you a she-camel. Uh, Verse 24, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving in her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry, but you said it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. The Bible compares us to a female donkey in heat. Sniffing the wind, trying to pick up a scent for a potential mate. And when when you get on the track, it it says that the the donkey is sprinting in that direction, lustfully craving after this other lover. And it says there's no point in stopping. It's no use. I love foreign gods. I've got to go after them. I've got to chase them. And so the way that you can identify what your idol is, what your idols are, is to ask yourself the question, what is my heart running to? What do I constantly be... What is the thing that is drawing my attention? And so here's some questions. What do you daydream about? Is it your, your wedding day? Is it uh, affirmation from a friend or from a parent or from a professor? Is it finally having that sort of body? What is it that is you know, rolling around in your mind? What do you find yourself constantly talking about? What are your conversations revolving around? If we looked at your planner, your schedule, your, your calendar, what would, be spend, what would be filling up the most of your time? Or if we looked at your bank statement, what, how would you be spending the bulk of your money? If we looked at your uh, internet you know, website history, what would be the websites that you constantly go back to, that you constantly keep returning to? But these questions, uh, really the questions that help identify your, your idolatry the most are the questions that, uh, if you didn't get this, how would you react? If something were to be taken from you, what would leave you the most upset, the, the maddest, the most infuriated? Would it be your computer, your, your money, your uh, reputation around campus or around, within RUF or within your church, your resume, all of your accomplishments? If that were to be taken, what would be the thing that drove you nuts? What would drive you to despair if, if, if you were blocked from getting it, if you couldn't get to it? Again, I'll just uh, be confessional again. This was two years ago. I'm in seminary, and uh, I'm beginning to go through the process of ordination. And it's a long, drawn-out process, but really the first step is just kind of it's just kind of jumping through a little hoop, super easy, where you sit in a room with about four or six guys, and you share your Christian testimony, how you came to know the Lord Jesus, and why you feel called to ministry. And so I did that. Get in a room with these guys and you know, share my story. And afterward, they all look at me and say, Matt, we are not convinced that you are called to ministry. You, um, uh, we see some big red flags here with what you're talking about. And everything in my heart said, what are you talking about? Y'all cannot be right. I'm in seminary. I lead the youth group at my church. I've been a Christian for X, Y, and Z. I'm, I've been an RUF intern. Everything just kind of you know, flew out of my heart and said, no, you are wrong. It threw me into a tailspin. And all it took was that one little you know, poke in my heart to expose, oh, I worship ministry. I worship being the ministry guy. And all it took was somebody to say, you can't be that. And my heart exploded. What is it for you? What is it if we said you can't have this, would your heart just utterly unravel? Third question, last question. How do we change? 
How do we get rid of these destructive idols in our hearts? Let me read verse 11 and 13 again. Verse 11, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. And then verse 13 again, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You see what they've done. You see what we do. We forsake God when something becomes more attractive, when something captures our attention. You exchange God for something that you think is just better. And we're all doing this. And uh, the way to get rid of our idols is to exchange them back when you begin to see God himself as more attractive, as more compelling, as something that wants to, is drawing your heart more so than these other things. Okay, how do you do that? Because you can't just will it. You can't just muster up the courage and say, I'm going to try harder, heart Go in that direction. Because as soon as you do that, as soon as you begin going down that path, I'm going to keep trying harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. All you are doing is feeding another idol that's lurking underneath the surface called pride, your spiritual pride. Yes, I'm getting there, but all I'm doing is fueling something else and making you self-righteous underneath the surface. Something bigger and better has to capture your heart. You remember the movie The Score with Robert De Niro and Edward Norton? It's basically a heist movie where these two guys are thieves and they've got to get into this you know, typical storyline where they've got to get into a museum and steal this artifact from the, uh, you know, this safe. And so they get past the security guards and the cameras and the infrared things and they get to the safe. And they can't pick the lock because they know if they do, something will trigger and they'll like lock down into ultra lockdown modes. They have to do something else. So what they do is they carve a little hole at the top of this safe, run a hose down into it that's connected to some water source somewhere in the museum, and then they start filling it up with water, filling up the safe with water. So once it's filled up to the brim, all they do is drop in this little shockwave device thing that just kind of pushes out, and all the water blows the door off of the safe, and they're able to get in and get the thing, and boom, out they go. They couldn't have gotten into the safe from the outside. Something else had to have filled it up from the inside in order to push out the door. What I mean is this. The way to get rid of your idols is that you have to begin filling up your heart with the love of God, so much so that it pushes out and expels these other idols. Okay, Nat, what do you mean? How do I fill up my heart with the love of God? The way to do that is to believe the gospel again and again. You say, Matt, okay, I'm a Christian. I believe the gospel. That's how I became a Christian, right? And I'm going to say the way that you grow as a Christian is the same way that you became one, believing the gospel, returning to it, returning to the cross, How do you do this? How do you believe the gospel again and again and again? The first thing is that you have to begin by admitting that you do this. Admitting that we all have idols cluttering our heart and and, and destroying our lives. Just admit it. We have to be honest here with each other and with ourselves. Unless you are willing to say, God, I am a spiritual and moral failure. I I, I have... I have found other people's attention more attractive and more compelling than you. I have found my body type more attractive and more compelling than you. 
We just have to admit we do that. And unless we do that, the gospel will not make sense to us. And the and idols will continue to clutter and weigh us down and you will not grow as a Christian. The first step is to begin by admitting we do it. The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so the first step is to say, God, I have a lot of other gods before you. And I hate it. But here they are. That's step one. Step two is to keep your eyes on what Jesus has done about it, on what God has done about it by sending his son. Because while we have been running after everything else, Jesus has been running after us. But we have forsaken God and said, forget you, forget this. Anytime that happens in a relationship, there is a fracturing, naturally so. If I were to forsake my wife and run after other women, other lovers, that naturally causes a break in our relationship where I deserve to be cast out. I don't deserve to be brought in. I was the one that messed up this relationship in the first place. Because I forsook her, the relationship is now damaged. The shocking thing about the gospel is that while we have forsaken God, God has forsaken his son so that we might be brought back in. What is Jesus saying on the cross as he is dying? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What I deserve, what you deserve, is to be cast out of God's presence. And yet what God has done is cast out his son so that we might be brought into a relationship that we don't deserve. And when you begin to get that, when the power of grace begins to not just be a cognitive category in your head, but actually be something that transforms and and settles into your heart, this begins to radically change you because you begin to see, okay, I'm so satisfied with what Jesus has done. I'm, I'm beginning and growing to be less attracted to these weaker other things that are calling for my attention. Why would I want the satisfaction I get from grades or from sex or from my reputation when I have Jesus himself, the spring of flowing water? On top of that, your, your idols cannot... Uh, your idols, no matter how many times you, you fail your idols, they will make you pay for it. They will make you feel miserable. They will say, feel the guilt. Feel how awful it is. Beat yourself up over it. If you don't get it, you feel terrible. This is the way that your idols treat you when you fail them. How does God treat you when you fail Him? He forgives because of His infinite treasure house of mercy and forgiveness because of what the Lord Jesus has done. When you begin to see the jaw-dropping grace of God running after you, pursuing you, dying for you, when you deserve to be die- when you deserve to have died and been cast out, you begin to see him as more attractive. And over time your heart starts to gravitate more towards him and less towards these other things. When you continue to return to the cross over and over and over again, what do you see? What do you see about yourself? You see, one, I'm a much bigger sinner than I thought I was. I have way many more things that I worship other than God than I ever thought I did. And at the same time, because of the mercy of Jesus, you are way more loved and accepted and approved and forgiven than you ever could have imagined. And when we keep coming back to the cross, that is what changes you. That is what begins to push out the idols. And that is what begins to make the Lord Jesus beautiful 
and sweet to your ears. Let's pray. Father, I pray that King Jesus would be seen as beautiful and as more attractive, that our hearts would be compelled to run to him where we would find grace and mercy and satisfaction. Father, we repent over the other gods that we have served. We pray that you would change us only by the grace and the mercy at the cross. Bring us there, we pray. Crush us there, we pray. And then rebuild us, reconstruct us purely by your grace and your love and your mercy. And we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.